I want to tell you about a podcast we think you'll like, Calling Bullshit, the first podcast about purpose washing that digs into the difference between what organizations say they stand for and the actions they're actually taking. Being purpose-led is one of the most important actions a modern business can take. And the Calling Bullshit podcast is here to show you who's walking the walk and who's just talking the talk. On each episode, host Ty Montague digs into a company's purpose statement and asks hard questions like, is BP actually living up to its new climate-friendly purpose? Is Airbnb's success negatively affecting residents of cities where they rent out homes? And is Juul living up to their purpose of helping adult smokers quit smoking? Hmm. Let's call bullshit on the businesses that deserve it. Listen to Calling Bullshit wherever you get your podcasts. A lot of economic problems in the UK, even worse than in the US. The trickle-down stuff coming out of the trust government, it's like a Saturday Night Live skit. If you go talk to like, you know, economists under 40 and you said, what do you think of trust? They would all be on the floor laughing as well. There has yeah. been tremendous change in the discipline already, but it's just that it takes a little bit of time for that to filter into public consciousness. From the home offices of Civic Ventures in downtown Seattle, this is Pitchfork Economics with Nick Hanauer, the best place to get the truth about who gets what and why. I'm Nick Hanauer, founder of Civic Ventures. I'm David Goldstein, senior fellow at Civic Ventures. Apparently, Nick, uh, you're not satisfied just being a bomb thrower here in the United States. Uh, you're off in the UK throwing bombs in the editorial pages, too, I see. I, I am. I've, I've been in the UK less than a week and already antagonizing <laughs> my friends. Eric Beinhocker and I have a piece in the Guardian slash Observer criticizing the new government here, uh, the trust government, for the criminal stupidity of this trickle-down economic agenda they have just unveiled. Yeah, well, that, that sounds like you're a very bad guest. Uh, yeah. What's the reaction there to a couple of Yanks making fun of their new prime minister? You know, the Goldie, the good news is that we were part of a giant chorus of criticism. Five years ago, seven years ago, 10 years ago, our criticism would have been lonely and ridiculed. Today, from every corner, people are saying roughly the same thing, which is this economic agenda is useless, silly, and counterproductive and won't achieve any of the objectives that they believe it will. So it's great to be, for once, part of that chorus of, of criticism. And, uh, you know, hopefully some of these idiots will listen and learn. You know, the pound is nearing parity with the dollar. It's an absolute catastrophe for the country here. Very good to be in a, an American with dollars right now, I will tell you. But the, the consensus is this was idiotic. Right. And uh, of course, you know, low, low pound would be good for exports if the UK still had anything to export. That's right. And of course, they could have chosen to invest in the capacity to export, but not. 
so a lot of economic problems in the UK, even worse than in the US. Uh, and you're not the only one who uh, who's noticed that. That's right. Our guest today, the mesmerizing Mark Blythe, is a uh, he's a professor, is director of the William R. Rhodes Center for International Economics and Finance at Brown University, uh, and a political scientist whose research focuses on, in particular, how uncertainty and randomness impact complex systems, particularly economic systems. With that, let's let's talk to Mark and get his views. The short version, my name is Mark Blythe. I'm a political economist. I teach and work at Brown University. And I've most recently published a book called Diminishing Returns, which is about underlying growth models of capitalism and where all the growth went. But Mark, you also recently published a book called Angrynomics. Let's start out and just give us a summary of Angrynomics. Sure. So we divide it up. It starts off this way. It's about anger. We got interested in anger in politics, Eric, my co-author, and I, when we went to, of all things, a Watford-Everton match. Now, if you want to see the bottom of the barrel's bottom of the barrel for soccer, that's pretty much it. <laughs> and what we noticed there, standing amongst the really hardcore uh, Watford fans, was that uh, the real fans don't spend any time shouting at the opposition teams. They shout at each other. They're kind of identity regulators. They're kind of um, collective action troops. They make sure that everyone's in line. And we started to think about what are the functional roles of anger in politics, because, of course, we've been through the Brexit debates, we've been through Trump, the rise of populism globally. And a common theme seemed to be everybody's angry all the time. So we started to think about it in terms of anger, and we started to read about anger, etc. And we settled on two versions of this. One is basically moral outrage. So if you think about Black Lives Matter and the events of 2020, Clearly, there's a moral wrong. It needs to be righted. That's what animates the populace. That's what animates the coalition that gets behind that. And if you think about another one, tribal identity, right? So whether it's Watford fans or whether it's MAGA rallies, there's an element of this. Now, we don't draw a bright line between the two of them synthetically. We use them as an analytic. And what I mean by that is, if you think about the people who went to, uh, the, White, not to the, the Capitol building on January the 6th, they were morally outraged too. You may disagree with those morals, but that was a motive motivator for their anger. So we got kind of interested in this whole this whole area. And we basically settled on a story about macro-angrynomics and micro-angrynomics. Macro-angrynomics is when you have giant financial shocks and you basically write a put option on the taxpayer at the bottom end of the income distribution so that the assets and incomes of the top 20% get preserved, people kind of notice that and it fragilizes faith in your existing institutions. The micro side of it is best seen in labor markets and is really about less about inequality and more about precariousness. That yes. if you don't have a feeling of control over your lives, you can double the national minimum wage in the United States, but if everyone's still working just in time contracts with no rights and no way to claim their share of productivity in the future, then they're still living a precarious existence. And yes. that, all the social psychology shows you, is what really drags people down and makes them angry. So we were interested in really kind of working through what anger meant for political economy and giving a very political economy account of why we have this angry politics. That's fascinating. I mean, if I may say so, you know, what in our research, you know, we came to the same conclusions is that the kind of inequality that America has experienced and most of the West has experienced over the last 40, 50 years, of course, it's worst 
in England and the United States, really, in the developed world, is that it has effectively shredded the reciprocity norms that make social cohesion and democracy possible. Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, if you build an economy that systematically makes things tougher for the bottom nine deciles every single year for 40 or 50 years, it should not surprise you that at some point they want to burn the whole damn thing down, right? Which is where we are. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I mean, I'm reminded of the great story about the Brexit debates when the Remain campaign went up to Sunderland and went to the Nissan factory. And given that 90% of the exports go to the European Union, the home team thought they were on home ground, but they started to get crap from the people who worked there. And uh, one of the people on the stand said, you know, lads, you'll have to remember, there'll be a tremendous loss of GDP if we do this. And one of them shouted back, your GDP. Right. If all the returns are going to one part of the population, to shareholders, if every time I sign a contract, my bathroom break gets worse, yeah. why should I actually have faith in this project? No, absolutely. It is absolutely true. So tell us about your new book, too. Uh, essentially, it's this idea of growth models. Now, this has been around for a long time in kind of post-Keynesian macro, that you're kind of disaggregating GDP. The simplest way to think about it is what, what bits of underlying GVDA do you need to tickle to get GDP growth? But what we wanted to do that was to put this in a more international context because the sources of growth are no longer, if they ever have been, entirely domestic. So even with large countries, you know, Britain's shown this just now, Britain has been able to have an overvalued exchange rate and consume before more than it's ever going to valorize with real exports simply because of the kindness of strangers wanting to buy their financial assets. Once that goes, you're in trouble. Similarly, if you're a country like Ireland, 50% of GDP comes out of Dublin. How should we think about that, particularly when two inversions from two pharma companies can double GDP or double GNP overnight? So what are the international sources of growth? How does it tie into the domestic sources of growth? And what are the kind of political coalitions which support the and impede change in those growth models. In a financialized economy, is is economics real? I mean, what <laughs> numbers? Uh, I'm having a crisis of faith in economics uh, over over recent weeks because I, uh, I, as I told Nick on a recent podcast, I where I told somebody I'm I'm falling into the nobody knows anything about anything school of economics. Right. So what's real here? I think what's real here in the current moment, let's get away from my book and just talk about, you know, what it is. Let's take the example of the United Kingdom. So what you've done is you've taken your shock absorbers, your welfare state, and in 2010, 2011, you weaponized the Greek crisis as an excuse to take one of the most residualized welfare states in the world and turn it into basically the worst one in the OECD to ever claim welfare. Despite that fact, you then live a propaganda life as a political party where there's this claims that all of these foreigners are flooding the United Kingdom to go and live on this welfare state, which is the worst one in the OECD, despite any evidence to the contrary. Then you get involved in the Brexit fantasies and you basically rip that up. Now, if you'd actually had a kind of uh, a real plan for an alternate growth model that would have been really invested in and, and, and pushed, then perhaps, you know, that might have in some sense worked. But this has just been a kind of fantasy disaster. Uh, and now on top of that, coming out of COVID, we had the same response as everyone else, which is basically to uh, make sure that this doesn't become a cratering depression. They've now decided to go on a kind of Thatcherite rant to, back to the 1980s tribute band. So what's real in this is kind of the fantasy politics and the fantasy economics. But the economics itself reasserts itself because at the end of the day, why is the pound tanking? 
because people who hold sterling assets look at this and go, what is going on? I'm not sure I want to hold this anymore. So I think the reality is still there. It's just that for several years, if not a whole generation, politicians have been living in a la-la fantasy land and have only been talking to each other and have been pursuing policies which markets have tolerated. And they've now got to a point where that's just no longer the case. Yeah, well, markets tolerated a lot of these policies because many of the policies advantage the owners of capital. Oh, yeah, right? totally. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but um, now you're getting to a point where it clearly doesn't. Yeah, yeah. And the trickle-down stuff coming out of the trust government is, it's like a Saturday Night Live skit. Yeah, it, absolutely. It's, like, yeah. it's just like literally the retreads from like, 1985 or something like that. It's just it's just astonishing that given what we know about the effectiveness of these policies that somebody could actually believe that they could deliver the goods. It's just it just yeah. boggles the mind. No, Biden was completely correct and you know the work that you've done has shown this and lots of people yeah. have done it and you know it simply doesn't work. It's not trickle down, it's trickle up. Yeah. So you know the, I think there's two ways of thinking about this. The first one is they know that they're dead. They're going to be out for a generation, so they're basically trying to steal everything for them and their mates on the way out the door which, you know, is reductionist, but might actually have some degree of truth. And the other one is, you know, this is another attempt to basically squeeze with the remnants of the British welfare state even more. But this is a bit like what Martin Wolf said about their project in the Financial Times. Once you've done Thatcher, you can't do it again. You only get to basically liberalise your banking system once. Once you're there, you can't yeah. do it again. And it's the same thing. Once Cameron and Osborne clobbered the welfare state half to death, there's nothing left to cut. Yes. And the reason that you'll see this is as the economy gets steadily worse, as it has to do with this policy mix, more and more people are going to be thrown to rely on those institutions, which they think are there, that actually aren't and are in an incredible state of dysfunction. So, you know, I, I do worry about, you know, the socio-political unrest that could arise in Britain as they basically figure out that they've been paying high taxes for years. The welfare state isn't there to support them. The idea that housing wealth is going to be there forever and it's always secure evaporates. And a combination of a supply shock on gas plus rising rates, plus a, weight, a massive import bill that's increasing cause of devaluation, hits households all at once. The idea that tax cuts, it's kind of, it's, it's a bit like this. The idea that if you put all those things together, you're looking at supply shocks, particularly in the European inflation stuff, right? It's really just supply shocks. Right. And so why do you raise interest rates? Well, I don't know. All right, so think about it. You're making people poorer, particularly if they pay more for their credit, to solve an oil and gas supply problem. It's not exactly joined up thinking. And this is why even the Germans now are basically thinking about price caps and targeted interventions, whatever, right? What is it the Brits are doing? Tax cuts. It has nothing to do with it. And the banker's bonus thing, that was the worst example of Brexit gaslighting I've ever seen. Yeah, it's just, it, it, would you explain that to our listeners, like that particular provision? Yeah, sure. Basically, after the financial crisis, Gordon Brown put in a cap on bankers' bonuses. And at first, everyone went, oh, that's terrible. We'll all move our jobs. And actually, a couple of hedge funds did move to Switzerland. Then they found out it was really boring and just as expensive, and then they moved back. Um, and then eventually, what they did was they altered the salary component to compensate for the cap on the bonus. So what's happened is Truss has just come in and said, hey, bankers, you're awesome. Why don't you just have all the bonus you want? And everyone went, great. That'll earn me a couple of more grand, but what's the point when public services are falling apart? Yeah. And that's literally, that was the most commented comment in the Financial Times from people who work in the city. I think if there is a 
silver lining to this cloud, it is, at least it's my impression, that the consistency and volume of the criticism is something that you would not have seen 10 or 20 years ago. Totally it, it, right? agree. Like, everybody is like, what? You can't believe this, right? Like nobody believes this anymore. Stop. And 20 yep. years ago, uh, people would have been like, well, okay, you know, tax for the rich, great growth. They're all the job creators, blah, 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 blah. So, I mean, we are making some slow progress, but it is uh, just- Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm not sure you're making that much progress with the core of the Republican coalition in the no. United States. No, but, no, no, no. But everywhere else, I think that yeah. that's absolutely true. No, and in terms of progress, there isn't, there isn't a better example than the Biden administration, which I think has surprised the hell out of virtually everyone- Except maybe for them, <laughs> about, about although I I think I think they've even surprised themselves uh, about the depth and breadth and ambition of rebuilding the economy from the middle out. If you look at the the spectrum of what they have accomplished and the nature of these accomplishments, it really is breathtaking and something I would not have predicted myself. Um, I, I just my call prior to this was with a person I will not name, but who is an, an economist, the top economist at one of the most important uh, departments in the government. Uh, and we were just chatting about uh, how astonishing all this progress has been. And you would have thought that the trust people would have made it, maybe would have taken a look at that, but no. I just wanted to get uh, away from politics for a moment and, and back to economics as if you can separate the two. <laughs> one of the things... I don't know if it was in your book or in one of the interviews I listened to, but yet you hit on one of my little pet peeves, which has to do with uh, uh, certainty in the economy. Because yeah. you you always hear from business owners, from the Chamber of Commerce here, how important certainty is to their businesses. And yet the entire neoliberal era has been one of uh, taking certainty away from working people. How much a role is this sense of uncertainty playing in both our current economic crises and our political crises? I think that one feeds the other. So what, here's what I mean by that. Jacob Hacker at Yale has been working on this for a long time. Ages ago, he did a book that really sort of opened up this agenda called The Great Risk Shift. And the basic idea behind this is, well, you know, what, what used to be uh, insurance by public and quasi-public institutions, for example, collective bargaining agreements, um, higher replacement rates and longer duration on unemployment insurance, etc., has essentially become first residualized in the first wave of neoliberalism and then basically abolished in a time of just-in-time contracts, multiple subcontracting, franchising, and the rise of very much precarious labor contracts. So there's been this, we're going to take the risk that inheres in capital and we're actually going to transfer it all to labor. Labor doesn't get any of the Upside, we get to take, if you will, all of the extra social surplus generated by shoving the risk on someone else. And I think that's basically created that feeling of precariety, etc. that's there. So if you think about it through a lens of certainty rather than uncertainty, what we've done is to make the lives of others incredibly uncertain. And that's emotionally draining and very, very stressful. So, you know, that that's one way to think about it. And I think it's a good way to think about what's happened. Yeah, that's so it's so true. You know, one bit of data that I cannot remember specifically, but just generally, that so supports this thesis is uh, uh, JP Morgan, of all things, data on the variability 
of income for lower wage workers. And, mm. you know, it's one thing to say somebody makes $30,000 a year or whatever it is. But if on a monthly basis, it's, yeah. it, it's highly variable, it's just impossible to run your life, right? No, because absolutely. If it, yeah. If, if in one month you, you make $1,000, that that won't cover your rent and everything else, despite the fact that the next month you may earn three. Well, this 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 explains why payday loans and food banks have become That's part right. of the private welfare state. That's right. Because you've got such income volatility and such yeah. uncertainty over employment that you end up being trapped in these, again, private institutions, which have taken the place of the public institutions and public contracts that used to insure workers against this. So we really have just dumped the risk on them and said, you deal with it. You could go get a loan at 40% on your own pay on your next paycheck. It's your fault for being poor. Yeah, correct. Mark, tell us about what you think we should do. What's in the, which Mark? specific area? Because well, there's I, so much to do. I, I mean, where know. would one start? Well, yeah. One thing I was heartened to see, I mean, the, the problem in the UK in part is obviously the Conservative Party. There's, there's a, if you think about it in a, in a, a weird way, every 50 years they blow up the country. I mean, if you go back to 1925 and going back on gold and causing the Great Depression, check. Uh, you could go to 57 and Anthony Eden, east of Suez, check, right? You could call Thatcher the crisis that got lucky because of Falklands and the turnaround in the global economy. But, you know, every sort of generation, they just basically decide to just blow the thing up and, and we're in the midst of that. The, the problem with this is the Labour Party then comes in and cleans things up. And yeah. rather than being a kind of crusading force that picks up the mantle and says, why do we allow these people to do this time and time again? They go, we promise to be a little bit more fiscally responsible, etc. Yeah. So they come in and they clean stuff up. But one thing I've been heartened to see in the conference is a discussion at last of a Southern Wealth Fund. And this is something that we discussed at the end of Angrynomics, that we've squandered, unfortunately, the early 2000s and the negative yielding debt that meant we could have refinanced debt and issued debt at a negative real rate. Inflation has now taken care of this. But if you think the yields on, the yields on renewable investments around 6%, inflation drops to 4 you do targeted uh, loans on green sector investment through a sovereign wealth fund acting as a kind of public corporation, you can begin to move the needle substantially on decarbonization, and you can do it in such a way that it doesn't lead to extra fiscal stress on the official budget. And you see the way the Germans are doing this, it's a variant of that with kind of off-budget expenditures, etc. And there's this growing recognition that we need to invest we need to rebuild, we need to decarbonize, and all of these things can go together in a virtuous circle. What we have on the other side of the table are basically long carbon assets that are fighting against the inevitability of their demise who fund the opposition. And yeah. that's very much how I see like where these battle lines are being drawn. Right. Think about it this way, a very simple one. If you need to actually switch from like central heating and uh, central air systems and very sort of electricity intensive things, right? And you want to go to heat pumps. You've literally got to put a heat pump in every house. Now, that makes the, the demand for HVAC engineers, which is a skilled job that pays well, go through the roof and stay there for about 30 years. Yeah, right. Yeah. So there is literally no downside in investing in those skills and rolling out that tech because yeah. at the end, we all benefit. Yeah, absolutely. And there are a hundred more examples just like that. Yeah, totally. Uh, which is what the trust uh, government should be focusing on. <laughs> no, they're focusing on tax cuts. <laughs> yeah. And as somebody who's in the process, I, I just got a twenty-two thousand dollar bid to do exactly that—to 
to convert my old oil furnace into a heat pump. And uh, the Biden administration with the Inflation Reduction Act uh, is promising an $8,000 tax credit, tax rebate on that. And that makes perfect sense. These types of massive investments in decarbonizing the economy, are the downsides purely political or is there any economic downside to doing it? Of course there are. I mean, transitions are hard. No single country, let alone a planet, has tried to transit its entire energy system. But the costs of not doing it are, do you lose everything? Yeah. So when I look at that balance sheet, you know, you hear this often as like, well, we really need to decarbonize, but can we afford it? And I'm like, honestly, you can't print a new planet, but you can yeah. print money. If the yes. worst thing that's going to happen to you is you're going to have above term inflation, you're going to nobody dies of inflation. Usually people will die of climate change. So yeah. I think that, like, you know, that needs to be put into perspective. But, yeah, there's a downside. I'll give you one of the obvious downsides. You need a lot of rare earths. It's not that you can't find them in places like Europe and the US. It's just that you don't have the refining capacity. The refining capacity is all in China. So if you want to do this, if you want basically refined beryllium and all the rest of it, you need to be nice to China at a time that you're not being nice to China and China's not being nice to you. So there are real geopolitical risks involved in all this stuff that needs to be smoothed over or not. But if you don't, what's your plan B for getting your hands on this stuff? So yeah, no one's saying it's easy. It could be, but but it takes it takes time to build capacity. Simple right. as that. Seven yeah, years yeah. for a mine, 10 years for a refinery, right? So it takes time and we don't have a lot of it. So, you know, none of this is easy, but it's 100% necessary. So it's just, you know, to me, to me, the real action is if you look at the... Um, the Republican side, and you get a little bit of this through the the, the other black door that is the policy advisors to uh, to Truss and Downing Street. A lot of this comes out of the U.S. Carbon Coalition, and they're basically fighting the loss of all of their assets, and they want yeah. to delay that loss as long as possible. So you know that that to me is one of the critical battle lines. If you look at the way the GOP are behaving just now, the whole uh, war on woke capitalism, the politicization of ESG, going after uh, finance groups, etc., for basically having political agendas, this is exactly the same playbook, if you will, as critical race theory applied to the economy. And it's a purely defensive tactic, a smokescreen, right. a politicization. There's nothing positive about it. Yeah, uh, I could not agree more. Although I, I do want to, I, I do do have to put in a plug here for uh, my colleague Eric Beinhocker and um, Doan Farmer's work on on the cost of the energy transition. Basically, you know, the faster we go, the cheaper it gets. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, because because you know, scale. You matters. got less crap to clean up. That's basically yeah. it. Yeah, that's it. There's the three variables right there: time, amount of crap, how much stuff you need to do it. Go. Also, the point is just that the the technology gets gets cheaper the faster you do it. Yeah, it'll get absolutely. cheaper faster. So yeah, absolutely. Th- their main argument being that a a fast transition is actually less expensive than a slow transition because uh, the technology will. Get there cheaper is a faster. caveat on that though, and it's worth acknowledging. Uh, Brett Christophers, I don't know if you know this guy. He wrote this brilliant book. Uh, on Britain, basically, as a society generated by rents a couple of years ago. He has a new book coming out with Random House called Our Lives in Their Portfolios. It's about asset managers owning real assets. He lives in Sweden, super smart guy. He has a piece that takes that and says, hang on a minute, though, lads, you are forgetting something, which is profit. 
If at the end of the day you can make renewables so cheap that actually putting them out of scale means you don't need any money, then you need a system other than capitalist profitability to actually make it happen. There's mm -hmm. actually a downside to making things so cheap so quick. Nobody wants to go near it because they won't make any money. And that is actually a constraint we're not thinking enough about. This sounds like a role for government. Uh, careful. When you start saying that, people will call you a socialist. Yeah. <laughs> so um, so uh, one of the questions we love to ask on our podcast is the, uh, uh, what is it, Goldie? I'm, I'm, uh, the, the, uh, the benevolent dictator benevolent dictator question. question. Yes. Oh, yeah. yeah. So if you were put in charge of, um, ordinarily, I would say the American economy, but- King um, of the world. Yeah. If you were king of the world, what <laughs> would you do? King of the world. That's right. No, no political constraints. No, yeah, no. Yeah. Yeah. You can print all the money you want. So I, I think, you know, let's focus on the transition because I think it is genuinely the most important thing over the next 20 to 30 years. So how do you get this to work? Currently, there's sort of three visions on the table. So the first one is basically we're going to get the private sector and we're going to kind of nudge them with nudge strategies and incentives to, to doing more stuff. And there's a little bit of that, but a lot of it has ended up as greenwashing and basically yeah. ESG box ticking. And it hasn't really turned on the Otherwise taps. known as bullshit. Yeah, it hasn't turned on the taps, right? And it's not because people aren't trying. I mean, if you look at blended finance contracts and all the rest of it, your rate of return's really good. It's just why are they not going into it? Answer, because it's easier to do other stuff you're familiar with, I guess, right? Then you got a second version of this as well. They're not going to do it, so the state should do it, so they should build all the assets and run them. Given the fact that we spent the past 40 years hollowing out the state and laughing at anybody who works for it and making sure there's a huge talent diversion into finance, giving up on that talent and also giving up on the state's, the, on the private sector's much bigger balance sheet than the vast majority of states, excluding possibly the US and a handful of others, strikes me as not the best idea. So what you've got to get is like in between that, a system whereby you're not just incentivizing finance, you're channeling that finance usefully into decarbonization in such a way that you're not just giving them a free option on the future, that they've got to have skin in the game as well, but they're incentivized in such a way that they know that they have to do it. And that means taking a firm stance on carbon assets. That means phasing things out. That means giving up on the fantasy of ever imposing a carbon tax because to impose it at the right level, it would have to be so high you would force sectors out of business. And the lobbying that would go on would ensure that that would never happen. It's been a 40-year distraction. So I would focus basically on developing state capacity that would allow us to channel finance more effectively into the transition, keeping private finance as a partner because you need the expertise and the size of their balance sheet, but making sure that we're all on the same page. One place that's done this quite well so far is definitely a small example, I know, but in Denmark, they have a climate law that it doesn't matter who wins the election, everybody's agreed to the targets ex ante. There's no backing out. You don't get to flip back onto carbon no matter what. And I think those types of agreements, both at the governmental level and also in the financial world, are a made, would be a major step forward as to getting us where we need to go. We can't just rely on nudges. They don't work. And we can't yeah. just hope that the giant big new green deal is going to happen because it's probably not. So we need to work in that in-between space. Well, that's not, you're not being much of a dictator there. 
Yeah, I just don't really have it in me. See, the thing about it is, so I, I'm I'm Scottish, right? Which means that you know we're not born optimists. You probably noticed. Um, but the other side of it is, I, I'm a Scottish Catholic, and a Scottish Catholic. It's kind of weird. Most Scottish Catholics are come from Ireland in the 1870s onwards, and that's exactly where my mother's side of the family came from. But we're actually the Scottish Catholics. We're the six percent that they didn't manage to throw into the sea during the Reformation. So, so you want to keep gives, a low profile. That gives you a particular view on the world that says, don't be a dictator, because if you do, some other dictator is going to come along and try and kill you. So yeah. I'd, pre I'd, I'd prefer to do the sort of, come on, lads, let's all go to the pub strategy rather yeah. than the you will all drink Guinness at 12 o'clock strategy. I don't think that really works. That's fantastic. So one final question. Why do you do this work? Um, I did honestly. I mean, if you switch the cameras on, you'll know that I'm sitting in a recording studio surrounded by instruments. Uh, I wasn't meant to do this work. I was basically meant to be a professional musician. But then I realized something that's true about life in general. There's no shortage of talent, only opportunity. And there's always someone who's better than you. So I gave that up after trying it in New York for a while. And I finished my PhD and I discovered that I'm good at this. I'm not the best. Other people are better than me in different things and all the rest of it. But I figure I can contribute. I enjoy teaching. I enjoy research. But now, particularly this moment, I have an 11-year-old. And I want her to actually have a future. So if we're not focusing on this stuff, if we're talking about trivia, if we're doing the politics of distraction, you're putting my 11-year-old's future and everyone else in her generation in deep, deep risk. And that is unacceptable. Perfect answer. And I got to say, Mark, I, I think there's a much greater shortage of talent in economics than there is in music. <laughs> so, so much more and, opportunity there. It's a much less competitive field. <laughs> so in, in defense, actually, I mean, I'll go back to this for a minute, though, right? I think generational change is a very important thing. As Niels Bohr once said, society evolves one funeral at a time. And if you go talk to, like, you know, economists under 40, trained in the top U.S. departments, and you said, what do you think of trust? They would all be on the floor laughing as well. Yeah. They don't believe any mm -hmm. of this stuff either. There has yeah. been tremendous change in the discipline already. But it's just that it takes a little bit of time for that to filter into public consciousness. I think what we're still rebelling against is an economics that took hold 30 years ago that most practicing economists under 40 no longer believe. Yeah. But, Sadly, but the politicians still do. They still believe The it. politicians yeah. still do, yeah. They, yeah. Well, they believe yeah. fairy stories and folk, folk songs. I mean, they get the distilled version that speaks to their priors, that, and that's always the problem. One thing, Mark, at the very top when we asked for your slate, you described yourself not as an economist, but a political economist. Is that becoming more the norm in the field? Uh, well, for me, I have an economics title because I run an economics center, but my PhD is actually in political science. But what I've always done from my earliest book onwards is I'm really fascinated by economics, not just as a way of explaining the world, but as a thing in the world. And someone who's written a really good book about this recently is Elizabeth Berman, the sociologist, who wrote this great book on how economics became the language of U.S. public policy, mm -hmm. how we gave up on fairness and basically you know, fetishized efficiency. And this is what I've always been interested in, because if you think about economics less as a lens for seeing the world and more as a language of power, whoever gets to define what, some, is, what is efficiency has tremendous power for setting the agenda. Whoever gets to say that something is economically illiterate that's an incredible retort. You, you're arguing from this position of authority, which may or may not yes. have any foundations, but nonetheless, it's an incredibly powerful 
political device. And that's definitely what we saw in the, into the 80s and the 90s and, and all sorts of forms. And we're living with those consequences now. So for me, it's I've always studied economics, but mainly as a thing in the world rather than the thing to understand the world. Although I think it's useful in that case too. Up to limits. Yeah. So interesting. I, I couldn't agree with you more. Economics is how we rationalize who gets what and why. Yeah, exactly. It's ultimately distributional. Think about it this way, right? When you had sort of the old school macro, what mattered was pushing the frontier out. And if you worried about distribution at all, it was a secondary concern. Now, if you go to the big econ meetings, the largest single section of panels is on inequality. Yeah. The world does change. Yeah, it does. Well, Mark, thank you so much for being with us. I hope you will join us again uh, sometime. I, I would be happy to. Yeah, the, the just absolutely fascinating conversation. And um, so nice to meet you. Yeah, really enjoyed it. It was a great conversation. I enjoyed meeting you guys. All the best. Mark sounds like a fellow traveler, Nick. What do you think? Yeah, he's super fun, hilarious, and smart guy. Thank goodness he didn't become a musician. I'll just say that. <laughs> I don't know. You've never heard him play. I know. So. I, and indeed, uh, listeners, I, I want you to know that when we connected with Mark uh, this morning, he is indeed in a music studio with instruments piled around him. It's the first time we've ever interviewed a guest who who was in a music studio when they were talking to us. Uh, but, uh, you know, obviously an incredibly smart and thoughtful guy and definitely is thinking about economics in, in very much the same way that we are. And I think I think we can confidently assert is a big believer in our middle out economic approach and agenda. Right. And and also, I think at a at a deeper level, our approach, you know, from the very beginning of this podcast, from the very first episode, we have talked about how important narrative is, uh, not just in describing the economy, but in changing it, that how we talk about the economy really changes the way the economy works and can work in the future, because it gives us permission to run the economy differently. And I think that's a a really a major theme of Mark's writing has been, and as he told us, this approach looking, trying to understand the economy as this thing separate yes. from just uh, something that tells us uh, what, what policies to do, how high, how low to raise the taxes, uh, interest, you know, set interest rates and so forth. And we couldn't agree with him more on that. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, just to circle back, I want to encourage everybody to read Nick's uh, op-ed in The Guardian. We will put a link in the show notes. Pitchfork Economics is produced by Civic Ventures. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Civic Action and Nick Hanauer. Follow our writing on Medium at Civic Skunk Works and peek behind the podcast scenes on Instagram at Pitchfork Economics. As always, from our team at Civic Ventures, thanks for listening. See you next week.